hey, Bill. Hey, Carla. Strange things are afoot at our podcast. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> it's like the Circle K. Yeah, it is, which I have been to and we will get into, by the way. I don't think I've told you that. I've been to that Circle K. Okay, first of all, we should probably introduce what we're talking about because right away I have something to say about the location of this particular film Yeah, let's in regards to our podcast. So today we are talking about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes, and this has been one we've been looking forward to for a long time, and I'm feeling a little bit, I wouldn't say guilty, but it was our third Southern California movie. Interesting. Stand in the liver, yeah. Karate Kid, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, although I'm also noticing that they're also more or less from a very similar era. Yes, yeah. Like, what movies can we make and still drive back to the studio? <laughs> So here we are, we're talking Bill and Ted's. And of course, for those of you who are tuning in for the very, very first time, you are listening to Heads Down, Two Thumbs Up. Well, and for those who aren't tuning in for the first time, you are listening to Heads Down, Two Thumbs right, Up. Right. And we, we like to talk about music, the time, movies that talk about school, not music. We like music too. We like movies that talk about school. <laughs> There's nothing like a good sound back. Exactly. We're going to get to that at some point. Should we just jump right in? Can I do the, uh, the IMDb? Overview? Totally. Yeah, let's let's get into it. All right. So IMDb shares, in the small town of San Dimas, a few miles away from Los Angeles, there are two nearly brain-dead teenage boys going by the names of Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. They have a dream of starting their own rock and roll band called the Wild Stallions. Unfortunately, they are still in high school and on the verge of failing out of their school as well. And if they do not pass their upcoming history report, they will be separated as a result of Ted's father sending him to military school. But what Bill and Ted do not know is that they must stay together to save the future. So a man from the future named Rufus came to help them pass the report. So both Bill and Ted decided to gather up historical figures which they need for their report. They are hoping that this will help them pass the report so they can stay together. Oh. I feel like that was written like a, a fifth grader. <laughs> well, it would sort of be apropos for this movie if that were the case. I mean, it really. Was. It's interesting to think that this movie actually begins well into the future, right? I mean, this is a this is sort of a futurist story, but then kind of a historical perspective. And so it really bounces all over through time. So it actually starts in the year 2688. It's like, why 2688? Because, yeah. you know, they recorded the movie in 1988. Yeah. So 700 years in the future. And of course, the world is, is fabulous in 2688, in San Dimas in particular. And really the legacy of the great ones, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan has really come to fruition. And it's a, it's a, it's a utopian society. <laughs> Thanks in large part to the way they have lived their lives. And of course, probably the Wild Stallions as well. Absolutely. The Wild Stallions, 80s music. So. <laughs> I find it fascinating that 700 years later, people are into like 80s metal. We're even right. Where are we? Like 30 years later, people are not into entire cultures are not into 80s metal. And timing wise, this movie was released in February of 89. Just two years later, we really saw a giant shift away from that metal band, the big hair bands of the 80s. 
pretty immediately into grunge, right? Pearl Jam released 10 in August of 91. Nirvana released Nevermind in September of 91. And so really like just after this movie came out, their whole style of music <laughs> kind of disappeared. Yeah, I would say that the writers of this movie, who are Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, I would not put them in the category of great futurists. Let's also think about the fact that in 1988, there were already cell cell phones and car phones, and yet they chose as their vehicle of their time machine vehicle to be a phone booth. Yes. Well, and it was initially... (laughs) It was initially a Chevy van that an older guy, Rufus, drove. And then they're like, yeah, that was Back to the Future. We can't do that. And they actually didn't know about Doctor Who, which apparently uses a phone booth also. So they're like, a phone booth is good. I don't know. It was a terrible decision. You know, I mean, when you think about the fact that their time machine is a phone booth and this is this is set 700 years in the future. And of course, when was the last time you actually got into a phone booth? I, I can't recall <laughs> even seeing one. <laughs> There's one in in, um, the soda park, in case you want to go stand in a phone booth. (laughs) About 700 years in the future, let alone 30 years in the future, 80s metal, not so popular. Right. So we start in this futurist moment and we we start to hear that there were these two men and they are these two individuals and they basically set the path for this utopian future that we're going to see, but it almost didn't happen, right? It almost didn't happen. And then we flash back to 1988, 700 700 years back in time to San Dimas High School. I love this movie. I adore this movie. I feel pretty strongly this movie holds up. There are two things that bothered me. One of them is why did they wait until like the day before the report if they're traveling in the future, even if you're a procrastinator, you travel in the future, why not give them like a week? Why not give them a month? Why not just, I don't know, like if all of humanity is at stake, talk to their teacher, Mr. Ryan, and say, hey, we will give you $50 billion if you give them an A, right? And he's probably going to be like, okay, I'll take it. Or pay a tutor $50 billion or, or pay 50 people a billion dollars each to tutor them, to work with them, to babysit them. There's so many things you could do aside from saying, hey, you have about 12 hours to finish your history report. Like Rufus, even in time traveling, is procrastinating until the night before the assignment. (laughs) That's just the way time travel works. You You can bump up right against your time limit. I mean, there's a lot of time paradoxes in this particular film, which I have some challenges with. But you know, I guess, you know, we can kind of go back to what I think is the brilliance of this film, and then we can kind of maybe get into the chronology of it. But to yeah. me, this I'm going to disagree with you on this film just a little bit, which is funny because we don't usually have huge disagreements about the film. But I actually yeah. didn't feel it held up as well over time as I had hoped, because I really remember loving this movie as a high school senior, which is when it came out for me, and thinking it was very funny. And now in retrospect, watched it again and felt like it was really clunky and a lot of missed opportunities to be a lot more clever. The writers wrote it over four days. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, I can kind of see that. (laughs) But the premise is absolutely brilliant. I have to say there's nothing more um, and more fitting at this time uh, in education, we're really thinking about project-based experiential learning. And this is clearly like epic experiential learning. I 
100% agree with that. Like as far as experiential learning goes, this is about as good as it gets. And we had a model for that in the late 80s. I mean, the model was time traveling, so maybe it's not replicable. But then again, you know, most good lessons aren't. Right. But, you know, it does speak to, you know, the fact that these young boys are totally disengaged in their class. They just don't care about history, which is actually not uncommon for adolescents. You know, you haven't lived enough life to even understand what history is all about. They're disconnected from it. Their teacher is, you know, remorseful that these students think that, you know, um, Joan of Arc <laughs> is related to Noah. <laughs> One thing I know is that Joan of Arc is not Noah's wife. Well, then, who is Noah's wife? They have no engagement. They have no connection to the subject matter. And it's not until they actually go back in time and they start to experience history in a much more lively and in-person way that they actually connect with the characters and actually really, really love history as they come back and and have learned about it from all the great historical figures that they capture over the course of the movie. I can deeply relate to that. I have never, ever enjoyed history as a school subject in my entire life. Like, I cannot overstate how little I have enjoyed history because every history class I ever had was, here's the next page in the textbook. We're learning Mm -hmm. this because it's page in the textbook. There's a bunch of stuff you have to memorize. We don't have enough time to explain why it matters. Read it, memorize it, get tested on it. Depending on how good you are at memorizing it will depend on how good your grade is. And for me, that's been all of history. It really wasn't most embarrassed to say like until Hamilton and American musical that I actually was curious about history, you know, and some of these, these other books that take us on kind of interesting journeys through time, Who's the dude that wrote the Steve Jobs biography that was so long? Sir Walter Isaacson. Yeah. So Walter Isaacson has another book that talks about kind of seven innovations. Um, And for me, Mm -hmm. like that was a fascinating way to go through history. It was like glass is actually more important than the printing press, right? And walks you through kind of that and how that came about. So I think looking at history through like storytelling is super interesting looking at history through um movie or play or whatever like with hamilton suddenly you know i know all this stuff once i have that connection once it kind of comes to life um it's actually interesting for me and i think that's what this movie does so so well i mean i was raised in a household as as a child of a historian so my father was a history professor so i had a different perspective on history and i really did see history as a collection of stories however there's no better way to kill you know the love of history than like an ap history class it's exactly what you said it's marching through dates, people, events, and with very little context. When you start to look at things, you know, um, really thematically, it, it comes alive in a different way. And, you know, most, most history teachers say, we don't have time for that. We just got to learn the history, right? And so this was, this, this was the premise of the movie was really brilliant. And I did appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I should have it duly noted that my wife uh, was a high school history teacher. You know, when she was teaching history, she would actually go through the book and, and grab those themes. And so she would do like women in history. And so, you know, she had to use the textbook. So she did, but it wasn't like, let's do chapter one, chapter two. It was like women in history. And then she looked at it throughout kind of the book. And so it, you were able to get these kind of bigger themes 
Um, yeah. And I think we get like a slightly different version of that in this movie. Yeah. You want to hit the chronology? It moves pretty quickly right away. We have George Carlin as Rufus. Yeah, so you get a glimpse of the future. Then you get a glimpse of the present with Bill and Ted practicing um, their music, the Wild Stallions getting together even before school. I mean, they're clearly devoted musicians. I'm sure you really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, definitely appreciate it. In the garage, rocking out. They blow a fuse that with those amps, there's no way they could blow a fuse. So that was that was funny. I feel like they kind of did that on purpose. Um, one of my favorite bits was the about how they need Eddie Van Halen. Stallions will never be a super band until we have Eddie Van Halen on guitar. Yes, Bill, but I do not believe we will get Eddie Van Halen until we have a triumphant video. Ted, it's pointless to have a triumphant video before we even have decent instruments. Well, how can we have decent instruments if we don't really even know how to play? That is why we need Eddie Van Halen. And that is why we need a triumphant video. Excellent! This is like a formative scene for my sense of humor as an adult, <laughs> right? So I deeply appreciate that. I found that incredibly funny, and that's why they need a triumphant video. Um, and then it's like, we're late. <laughs> for what? <laughs> for school. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? And then right away we get history. We get history class. We get Mr. It's Ryan. the worst. <laughs> it's the worst. History is the worst. I also love that it's a pretty standard history teacher or just teacher in general role where it's um, kind of mocking the kids publicly, kind of shaming them for not knowing. That's definitely like a pretty common teacher thing of like, you don't know it. You know, Ted, stand up and put them on the spot. Everybody else is disengaged. No one else has their minds moving or thinking or collaborating. Apparently, I don't know if you caught this, I'm kind of doing a little trivia dig, but apparently the blackboard on the opening scenes actually lists all of the people that they eventually pick up and meet throughout history. So if you go back and watch it again on the opening, but on in that classroom scene, any names that are written on the blackboard happen to be their, their future uh, time travelers. Oh, that's fantastic. I caught a couple. So when, when they're in the classroom, this is actually a bit of a revelation this time watching it. I've watched this movie a lot. I have not watched it for some time. I think that they're actually not stupid that as the IMDb synopsis gives us that they're not brain dead teenagers or dim-witted or whatever. I think they just don't care, part one. And then part two is that they just don't have the skills to learn. They're like at Circle K in a couple more scenes and they're just asking random people. Like they clearly don't have Wikipedia, right? They don't have phones that can look up data. What do they do? They just like ask people, like they're trying. They checked out a ton of books as they're leaving San Dimas High School, which is not the real San Dimas High School. Um, they have a bunch of books and those don't show up again. So like they don't know what to do with the books. They don't know that you can like go to a library, that there's like, help. Like they're just kind of at a loss. There's like, less, let's ask random people in a parking lot. Um, and I don't know how much of that, I don't know how much of that is really their fault. I really feel like like they kind of just didn't care about random stuff in a book and um and just didn't kind of absorb the lessons of how to write a paper. Yeah. And once again, I think since this tends to be a podcast where we talk about perspectives on schools that show up in movies. I actually don't think that one is totally off. I think a lot of kids are walking around disengaged in their materials. And I think this particular 
movie does a really good job showcasing. It's not about intelligence. It's really about engagement. So Mr. Ryan, their history teacher says, here's what you have to do. If you don't get an A plus, you won't pass. We're like, okay. He's telling them, but mostly he's telling us. And then uh, they're like, what's the assignment? Please read it aloud for the audience. <laughs> the stepmom. And I'm going to cut in right away and say, this is my rewind moment. Oh, like, it's such, it's such like a throwaway joke that like you have a hot stepmom that's four years younger than you. Older, four years older, older, right? Yeah. She's, yeah, she, younger. I remember when she was a senior when we were freshmen. <laughs> yeah. Shut up, Ted. And I think that goes to actually the very, very end where Sigmund Freud, you know, is, is diagnosing Ted. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. Hmm? Nah, just got a minor Oedipal complex. I think that's why the mom was so young, just so that, you know, he could have a crush on his stepmom. I really think that, like, it's a really, really, really long joke that just doesn't land and is mostly just, like, takes one of the few women that's actually in the movie and just makes her like a joke about sex. Yeah. I don't know. I don't super not into that. So I actually watched this movie twice, once with Piper, my, my seventh grader and once with Mark thinking two different audiences, how they would respond. I can talk about that later in the podcast. But when I watched that scene with Mark, both of, both of us were just sort of, this is so cringy. Mm-hmm. Missy is cringy. It doesn't further the plot or the story or the characters. <laughs> it's just like, I don't, yeah, I'm so over that entire storyline. I'm with you. Although there is something sweet about Missy. She's very nice and she's very accommodating. And she really becomes in some ways like the getaway driver at times. And so her role is her role is actually fine everywhere else except in that context. Absolutely. Then we pan to the Circle K. We do. And they're really trying to figure out what to do. They are at a loss about how they're going to pass history. I mean, they're really deeply distraught. They are asking anyone that they can find to help them think about history. They ask the Circle K, is she a customer or is she someone who works there? They're asking everyone. Like, you name it, they were asking. (laughs) When did the Mongols invade China? I mean, they just like, and nobody knows anything because- it is true that most of us actually, if you ask about any particular moment in like world history, I'm not going to be able to pull out a date for you because I, I don't know that even though I memorized it for school, which is actually another great point. We all memorized it. We all knew it at one point and then we quickly forget it once we finished taking the test. So yeah. no adult has any idea <laughs> either. And so yeah. they're stuck and they're in the circle K feeling distraught when all of a sudden, boom, Rufus appears. Yeah. And I think this is the moment to tell you a quick little side story. I used to live in San Dimas before I moved up here to come work at Hillbrook. Of course Hillbrook. you did. Of course we did. <laughs> and depending on how I drove home, I could I could have driven past the real San Dimas High School and that Circle K every day. That Circle K was two miles away from home. Around that time, we were doing a lot of work with our high school youth ministry at our church. And, um, and different kind of group of mostly 20 something adults would, would help put on like a particular night, you know, so every Sunday night it was called a life night. And so we were doing ours and our, our task was to teach about kind of popes throughout history. And we're like, so here's what we're going to do. That was, it was me and this other guy, Dan, uh, I was like, we're going to make a video where Bill and Dan's excellent life night, we're going to travel through time stealing popes. And so we actually shot the whole thing in the Circle K parking lot, the actual parking lot. Nice. So we could actually cut between like the establishing shot 
and then a close up of us with like the same background. And it wasn't perfect, but it didn't need to be perfect because enough people actually knew they're like, oh, they're really at that circle K. And people that live within like kind of five miles of San Dimas, like know about Bill and Ted's and, and know enough about, you know, what, what was where. And so we shot the whole thing and cut it together. And it really felt like when Rufus comes down in his, uh, his telephone box, what are they called? They're not called a telephone booth. box. Booth. A f- telephone Tele- booth. Phone booth. Phone booth. <laughs> already forgot. Oh my gosh. When his, when his phone box drops from the sky, you know, <laughs> it looked like we were there. Um, and then we captured different popes and it was, it ended up being, uh, really fun. But yeah, I've, I've been to that Circle K before. That's great. Well, so we we can count that as one other location we've been to. I've been to Rushmore. You've been to the the Circle K. The telephone box falls from the sky. And then was it pretty immediately that the future Bill and Ted right. land? Exactly. Yeah. So the future Bill and Ted land, and there's this box of, you can see kind of through the the windows that there it's, it's a little crowded in there. You don't really know who's in there. Rufus comes out. Greetings, my excellent friend. Do you know when the Mongols ruled China? Wow. Perhaps we could ask them. And uh, you get a sense that they're about to have a really interesting experience. And, you know, Ted says it best, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Yes. I don't think they're going to have a great experience. I think they're going to have a most excellent adventure. They are going to have a most excellent adventure. I think they even say that. (laughs) But pretty quickly, Rufus shows them. We don't really get any sort of tutorial as to how to call or what the numbers mean. But instead of the pound, which today's kids would call a hashtag on the phone, it's the infinity symbol. So we know something's new. And uh, Rufus takes them, of course, to Austria, 1805. That would make complete sense, given the fact that Napoleon has already been mentioned numerous times yep. um, in some type of reference. And I will say, I don't know if you caught this, but a very early reference, very early on in that first opening scene, when they're talking about the wonders of San Dimas and how incredible it's it's become, one of the things they mention is fantastic water slides, brilliant water slides. And of course, that plays... Uh, out later on in probably my favorite scene in the movie as Napoleon goes to the water park. So Napoleon is sort of like this great figure um, in this, in this story. (laughs) I'm I'm so glad they landed on Napoleon early drafts of the script had them going back in time and getting Hitler and bringing Hitler. Oh gosh. Not what this movie needs to be. That's like funny and like an improv comedy night that nobody records and you have to be in the room to really get it. But that would have. Oh, no, so I'm bad. so glad that is not where they they went with this. <laughs> Napoleon yeah. is just bad enough, but totally comical, and they really they really um, sort of like make him bigger than life, <laughs> even though he's a very small, short dude, <laughs> yeah. an angry short dude. They time travel back to San Dimas, and they're like, "Where are we?" In San Dimas, and then out of nowhere, we find that Napoleon actually got caught in the time, space-time continuum, travel, time tunnels, time portals, whatever we want to call it. Yep. And that's what gives them the idea for grabbing the historical figures, which I had forgotten. I forgot that detail. I thought that was the plan all along. Yeah, no, me too. It was not until Napoleon was exploded in their direction and inadvertently landed in San Dimas, 1988. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's as much a surprise as a surprise to them as it is to Napoleon. But they realize, oh, my gosh, this is a great idea. We got to go get everyone else, but we can't bring Napoleon with us. So they leave right. Napoleon <laughs> to be babysat by Deacon. You have to watch this guy. His name is Napoleon. He is a very famous French dude. We have decided to collect other important figures from history for or report we are doing. And then they go right to the Wild West. And we get that cheesy line that I think inspired the whole idea. Let's reach out and touch someone. And they do. Yeah, which of course was the um, the the tagline for the telephone service. I don't remember which one, but reach out and touch someone was sort of the whole. I remember those commercials. So that was a clever yeah. line. <laughs> yeah. And the phone booth, nobody really seems to care that it lands from the sky. Or even if you miss it landing out of the sky, no one's like, hey, what is that phone box? Right. There's like, there's two outhouses and a random rectangular prism. Everyone's fine with that. I actually appreciate that, that, that they don't give too much credence to the ridiculousness that there is a telephone booth that fell out of the sky. There's like, whatever, let's get on with it. Let's go to the bar. Two beers, please. Whoa, he didn't even card us, dude. Yeah, we have to remember this place. If you're not along for the ride, and going, why? Tell me more about why nobody notices the phone booth. We have this random dancer that's like kicking people. She's on the bar, kicking people in the face. And there's just a rope. And she grabs the rope and she swings through and like crashes through a window. <laughs> Hilarious. Like how did, how did that make that anywhere along the way in the creative process of like they write that in the script and then they're filming it and then they shoot it from a couple angles and then they edit it and then they watch like the first cut and they're like, Yes keep the random person kicking people in the face, swinging from a rope, crashing <laughs> through a window. Like that's perfect. Like perfect. I love that they, <laughs> that they did that because it makes no sense and there is no need for it. But it just like, it just kind of sets like the tone of the movie and makes me so happy. Something about the phone booth. I mean, it, I like that they ignore it too. And it's, it's the opposite of say back to the future where he arrives in a DeLorean and has to spend a lot of time like hiding the DeLorean, because if anyone were to see the DeLorean, they wouldn't have been able to explain it. Instead, <laughs> it's just great that no one cares. They don't even really acknowledge it. So I love that. What I didn't love about this scene is Billy the Kid himself. I have a real problem with this Billy the Kid. He is like, he looks like he just shaved and cleaned himself up. Like Billy the Kid should be like rough and ragtag. And this guy looked like, I mean, he wasn't quite, you know, vineyard vines, but he was he was a little bit vineyard vines, like a cowboy suit. He just looked preppy. And then they just put like a Western wear on him. Well, that's another one that I like. I like that they didn't go for authenticity. <laughs> There's like, you know what, like Billy the Kid look, was surfing this morning and now he's Billy the Kid and just exactly. not, not the point of the movie. And and that usually bothers me a lot, like a lot, a lot. And it didn't bother me at all. It's just like, it, it's so like if they tried to make him look authentic, that's when it'd be like, ah, oh, they didn't nail it. But there's like, nope, going for it. <laughs> it was like the most clean cut though. Billy the Kid, but you liked it. I thought it was, that for me was a little bit of a miss. And I can get that. Like it, it was a miss, but it was, it was such a miss that I think it was funny. All right. So they, they get, they get um, Billy the Kid and then they're off again, right? They're, they're ready to head to ancient Greece and they get to Socrates, as they like to call him. 
And when they saw him, they're like, oh, you know, like, oh, Socrates, like, who is that? And they suddenly have a textbook. And they're like, oh, oh it's, it's under, under Socrates. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was much funnier than it's ever been. I don't know why that was so funny. But um, <laughs> they philosophize together with an 80s song, Dust in the Wind. Which, by the way, my next door neighbors, I had this when I was growing up in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had, you know, a tremendous crush on my next door neighbor who was this very good looking um uh, young man and um, I remember one time you know and he was way out of my league for sure and I just remember one time he and his friends were, were fooling around and they were serenading me outside my window and of course this gave me nothing but just you know hope in a, in a really hopeless situation but what did they sing to me? Dust in the Wind so that song will always remind me of my dear friend Pat who later became a very close friend actually and uh, now uh, I think of him and his little trio of boys singing Dust in the Wind under my window you nailed it Pat I, I love it I know. <laughs> but um, so they get Socrates and he keeps correcting them actually what does he say Socrates <laughs> Not accurate, but is equally fantastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> then they take a trip, interestingly enough, to medieval to the Middle Ages. They get to medieval England, yeah. Where, um, you know, actually, I don't think they grab anyone there. Do they grab anyone? They had some sword fights. They had a whole bunch of Star Wars references. I hadn't caught before. Um, <laughs> Ted was speaking like Yoda. Which I thought was great. It's like, did they just like quote Star Wars? Yes, yes, they did. Yes. They do have one major moment here um, that that continues down the line as sort of a plot thread, which is that they meet the they meet the babes, they meet the princesses. Yes, they do. And <laughs> they they say, you know, we can't take them. You know, they kind of are not sure what to do with them, and they keep saying things like, "We gotta go." It's a history report, not a babe report. Bill. Those are historical babes. And we find out, it, it took a few listens for me, including subtitles, both of the princesses, Joanna and Elizabeth, are going to meet big, fat, ugly men and marry them that day. Oh. And so that's why they like, got to save them. And they're like, we'll save you, princesses. Um, the, the king, I, was it King Henry, like in the background? You know, he was like, you're about to marry them. And, and she w- one of them whispered to the other, she's like, we can't marry those big, ugly Men. <laughs> well, thank goodness for time travel. One of my favorite quotes, possibly of all time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? <laughs> they think they're about to be an Iron Maiden, the metal band. They don't know That's... that it's a torture device. Right. Who comes to the rescue, Carla? Wait, who does come to the rescue? Socrates and Billy the Kid come oh, to the yes. rescue. That's right. They come to the I actually watched I, I watched it once and then I listened to it once on my commute. Oh, and that's this good. super holds up. If you're listening to this right now and you're well, you're obviously if you're listening to this, you're a listener. This this holds up as audio only. And I, I like shoved it like face down so I couldn't kind of cheat and drive and watch because I knew I would try to drive and watch and that's a bad idea. Yeah. Hundred percent listen and like ninety nine percent of it is totally followable if you know the movie. Yeah, I might yeah. even suggest it could even be better as an audio. <laughs> audio experience, just sort of all the visuals, it works. It's possible. <laughs> so, they're, they're, yeah. so they're rescued pretty quickly, I think. Actually, we come back to the future, back to San Dimas 1988, for just a little check-in on what's going on 
Napoleon is probably my favorite character. So I love being able to sort of dip in and see what's happening to Napoleon. And he at this point is being taken out to what is really, I think like a Farrell's style. They are ordering the biggest ice cream sundae that you can imagine. (laughs) The Ziggy Pig, the single greatest ice cream spectacle known to man. Eat the pig, eat the pig. Ziggy, 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 zig. So that is, that's really fun. And so you get a chance to sort of dip into what's going on in the moment. You do. And they get a pin, a ziggy piggy button that he wears later when he's bowling. Mm-hmm. Napoleon has a lot of good adventures. He does. That, that actor, I don't know his name, but he was on the Truman Show. He was the random dude in the bathtub that would cheer for Truman. He's done a handful of things in, in Truman shows where I know him. I didn't know that. We get to continue on the on the epic journey, and we get to Vienna. Yes, where we meet no none other than Sigmund Freud, Freud dude. Extra credit, dude. <laughs> then it just goes slow burn montage. It's like a lot of time with Freud, a while for Beethoven, a little bit faster. France, Joan of Arc, and then just picks right up Mongolia, Genghis Khan, White House, Lincoln, Candygram, <laughs> and then there's a problem. There's the broken booth. Wait, you do know who plays Joan of Arc, though, right? I know. Oh, it's Jane Weedlin, who is a member of the Go-Go's, plays Joan of Arc. I love that. I felt like the movie was just getting going. This was already like halfway over. Yeah. We've made a lot of progress. Napoleon cheats in bowling. He gets kicked out. And then we just happen upon kind of the throwaway joke where they're like in a million BC and they all have the gum. Um, in an earlier draft, they actually taught the cavemen how to make fire so that they could light up a joint. And that was a whole thing. So I feel like that's how they landed on a million BC. Like they, they kept that part of it, but it was just like, oh, we're stuck and there's cavemen and whatever. <laughs> Luckily, they didn't. I don't think they brought anyone back from that. It would have just been a bad idea. Just no, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> not helpful in their final report. <laughs> We get to see the other side of the Circle K conversation. Right. One in your walk, pushing one number ahead. And I love that they don't explain that. You got to push one number ahead. And he's like, oh, obviously. I've been time traveling for you know 45 minutes of a movie. I forgot the one. It's so interesting that, you know, once again, another kind of time paradox in this movie, which is that they've removed all of these people from history, but nothing seems to be, no, nothing, nothing gets impacted. <laughs> Well, yeah. And then in Back to the Future, which which sets a lot of precedences, you know, it was like just a couple of years beforehand. If you saw yourself, it could completely destroy the space-time continuum like, yeah. and all of existence. And here they have a whole conversation with themselves, like in the first 15 minutes of the movie, and then again at the halfway point. Uh, and I love that they just go for it and own it and explain none of it, and it's fine. But they do learn some pretty good tricks of how to use time travel in order to set themselves up for success later on. So we'll kind of get to that. (laughs) Yeah, and then they finally get to the assignment. They have these historical figures, and the task was to find out how historical figures would have felt about San Dimas 1988. So they take them to the mall, which would not have been in San Dimas. San Dimas doesn't have a mall. Um, It would have probably been the West Covina Mall. That would have been their choice, maybe Montclair Mall. Mm. They take them through, remember who your buddy is, walk around, see what you're going to see. No problems will happen. Nothing. Actually, the mall scene is by far sort of the mall scene and the water slide scene, which are actually happening simultaneously. This to me is the apex of this movie. This is the part that I really, truly did love. (laughs) 
I loved seeing how they would show up in these various public places. I love that um, the the writers just really tried to imagine what store would Genghis Khan go to? Yeah, clearly a sports yeah. shop, a sporting yeah. shop, a sporting goods shop. And clearly he would wreak havoc in it, right? Makes complete sense. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. Sigmund Freud would be eating a corn dog. I mean, there's just no other. There's no other thing he would be doing at the mall. Do you think they could have gotten to this part quicker? Because I agree. Like this is such. Like I think when people imagine this movie, they're like, "All right, Montez's excellent adventure." Like Napoleon water slides, all the characters creating all kinds of problems at the mall. Do you think we could have just jumped way quicker to this? Maybe, but you had to pick everyone up. You know, you you did have to, you kind of had to see them in their own, in the places they belong historically, and then actually try to extract them and put them into a modern context. (laughs) But it was every stereotype you could possibly imagine (laughs) and just recreate it. It was so funny. That was, that was the best scene for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite part of that entire mall scene was uh, the keyboard salesman. Where in such like a salesman way looks at, at Beethoven and goes, You a musician? Well, here, try this. But I'm like, What? Which is unclear if he doesn't understand English or he's like, Am I a musician? Like, do you know who I am? But Beethoven, like having a chance to play the synthesized keyboard, just he gets, yes. he gets giddy. He's so excited about this piano that can make music on its own. I love that idea. And and I wonder, and I've wondered for so long, like what would these musicians do now if they had these tools now? And I'm, I'm pretty convinced Beethoven would not be writing orchestral music. What would he be writing? Techno? I don't know what it would be. I think it would, I don't think it would, or if it was orchestral, it would not be only an orchestra. He was doing that because that's like the only tools at his disposal. And the stuff he was writing was like super cutting edge. Like people were, angry about what he wrote you know it wasn't until like the 1800s that people would actually have like legit like brawls at concerts but this was not like the stuffy thing that we saw where everybody's like fanning themselves in the aristocracy like he was he was like pushing it to the edge so i love that he gets a little bit giddy and he's like ah i push this button and it's Mm -hmm. it's this (laughs) if you gave him like a week with like the technology of the 80s you know, like, uh, I wonder, like, I wonder what he would have written stuff for that. Like, I think that's fascinating. And I love what this movie does that it's so just ridiculous, but then gets me thinking about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. The mall though. That is a lot of mall security. Like what <laughs> the hell? <laughs> I think I've there's actually a lot of mall security in reality. I just don't think you no- usually notice them because you don't have people coming from other time um, periods yeah. and wrecking havoc on the mall. But I mean, at one point there were like 20 mall security. <laughs> I can't imagine there being more than like three at a time. Five would be a lot, mm. but not for sure. Not 20 people. Um, and also there are no ice rinks in LA. Okay. There is in it's San a- Diego. There's an ice rink at a mall in San Diego. There's one in Irvine also, which is actually mm-hmm. where they shot a bunch of stuff. I wonder if they did the mall scene possibly in Irvine because um, Waterloo was a mixture of like three or four different water parks. I spent nearly every summer growing up at Raging Waters in San Dimas. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's Rampage. They pulled that out to put in the other one. You know, there's the, um, what's it called? Just like the, the, the wave pool, the wave cove. There it is. Mm. The speed slide. 
Dimas. You know, like I knew, I knew every single thing and where it was. And then it cuts to something else. I was like, that's not San Dimas. And then it cut back to it. I was like, speed slides again. Cut to something else. Not that. You know, the whole part where he's like, let's go, buddy, with the lifeguard scene. Not Raging Waters, not San Dimas. Well, I think they, they did film some of this in Tempe, Arizona, didn't they? Oh, really? I don't know. I think so. I believe so. I think some of it was filmed outside of of California, Southern California, as some things are. I will say that once again, Napoleon at the water park, bullying kids out of the way and, and, and kicking them to the side so that he could go on the slide more quickly. I mean, that, that was just brilliant. And I loved it. And I loved, I loved how at the end when they get him, he's in the car with his sunscreen on his nose. <laughs> it's just like... Was that Zinka? Do you remember Zinka? Yeah. Colored, like super thick, like, you know, yeah. 200 SPF layer. I used to do colored Zinka. You do do like pink cheeks and a blue nose. <laughs> So then we do get a chance to get back to actually the fact that these reports are happening at school, like the projects are happening. These guys are running out of time at this point. They've got to get all these guys back and in the, they got to, they got to get them going because there is actually a port happening and we're starting to see some of the student reports and they do range from the very serious, you know, expose and kind of clear, well-written narrative <laughs> oral report. The stratification of our society is much like Marie Antoinette's. <laughs> to the ramble of the football captain. Everything is different, but the same. Things are more moderner than before. Bigger and yet smaller. It's computers. San Diego's high school football room! It does make you realize that they are at the very bottom, right? They are, like, even the worst of these reports are not as bad as what this teacher thinks they will come up with. If they come at all. If they come at all. <laughs> it should be duly noted that that quote, San Dimas High School Football Rules, is probably the best known punk rock song from the band The Ataris. Gosh, how do you know this stuff? <laughs> um, the title, San Dimas High School Football Rules, has nothing to do with the song. None of the lyrics, but the title is just an awesome title. <laughs> it's a great title. Keep it. Right. Whatever. In the meantime, all these guys have been arrested. Right. So they you know, this becomes the next big, great challenge for Bill and Ted. They're just getting ready to get them to school. And then, of course, they make such a mess of them all. They all get gathered up and taken to jail. Fun fact. San Dimas has sheriffs. So when it shows L.A. County Sheriff San Dimas, this this is accurate. This is accurate. OK, well, good to yeah. know. I appreciated that. And I don't think we've even mentioned that it's actually Ted's dad who is the sheriff. Yeah. So he is actually the one who's locked his child's final report up, basically. This is one of my favorite moments, certainly my favorite part of Rude Dude. I want to know why you claim to be Sigmund Freud. How do you claim I'm not Sigmund Freud? Why do you keep asking me these questions? Tell me about your mother. And then poor Abraham Lincoln. No one knows how to spell his name in the 1800s. All right. What's your name? Abraham Lincoln. Uh, That's L-I-N-C-O-L-N. I I know how to spell Lincoln. 
So anyhow, these guys all end up in jail. And so, you know, it's going to have to happen. They're going to have to break them out in order to, to pass history. So that becomes the next big challenge. And um, luckily, luckily, they have a plan because they have learned how to use time travel to their benefit. And they've got two things working for them at this point. One, very early on, we learn that Ted's father has lost his keys, his, his, his jail right. keys. <laughs> Cause that's what you do. You just leave your jail keys around your jail keys from San Dimas. Would you know what those keys are? <laughs> you can't find his keys. It becomes part of like the early part of like challenging. He's got to find his keys. And we learn at this moment that actually Ted has stolen the keys. Doesn't know it at that time. Cause he hasn't traveled through time but comes up with a plan to steal his father's keys in the past so that they can time travel to the future and leave them in a place where they can find them and release their, their um, history project. So they find the keys. So that's one thing, very clever. And the second thing they have going for them is Missy. I mean, Missy comes to the rescue at this moment where she pulls up the car yeah, she and does. Bill's like, Mom? Yes? Can you please bring the car around back? Sure. We don't see them actually getting stuck, failing their history report, then afterwards time traveling back two days, then stealing the keys, then dropping them. They just say all of that. Right. And so as we watch the movie, like it's almost magical. And the same thing with the tape recorder. Like I love this way of explaining like the time paradox. There's like, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll do this, 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 and that. And then the keys will be here. Boop, there they are. Oh, you know what we should do? We should get a tape recorder. And then boop, it's there. You know what we need? We need a trash can. Remember a trash can. Trash can? What are you talking about? Yeah, get this thing off me, kid. Sorry, Dad, but we've got to go past our history report. Oh, by the way, I found your keys. So we are getting them out of jail, pan back to San Dimas High School, where the reports are just finishing up, and the lights are going down, and they've pretty much given up on Bill and Ted. And all of a sudden, Los Santos, please welcome for the final report of the afternoon from all throughout history, some of the greatest people who have ever lived in their 1988 world tour. Spotlight, backlight, <laughs> which takes a long time to do. Like, how did they pull that off in like 10 seconds? They're capable. But they also had time travel. So who knows what they did to set that up. At this point, really, they could have set up anything, right? Once again, they're smart guys. They're smart guys. They're disconnected, right? Unengaged. So once they're engaged, anything can happen. So for all we know, they also set up all the lights, the sound in their their time traveling. I buy it. But this part where Billy the Kid comes out, so we know as the audience, that's really Billy the Kid. Bill and Ted know it's Billy the Kid. But every student and every teacher, they're not going to jump and go, this has got to be Billy the Kid, right? Especially the way this Billy the Kid looks, because he still looks <laughs> like he's been surfing and then come in. Yeah. So what is Mr. Ryan, their teacher, thinking? Is it like they just rented like 10 actors? Probably. We're super into it because we know it's all the real people, but it wasn't for anyone else, right? 
Like this right. would have been really lame, I think, for everyone else, or like cute at best. And also, even though the scene itself only takes a few minutes, you get the sense that they're in there for like hours watching all oh, these yeah. historical figures. <laughs> like this presentation must have been, you know, six hours long because each character has an opportunity to kind of address and, and show their maps or whatever it is that they're doing and, and give their little piece of history. And of course it ends with Abraham Lincoln <laughs> in some sort of like bad Gettysburg address <laughs> finale. I think my favorite Keanu Reeves quote or my favorite Keanu Reeves woe is actually from this. And hence, his aggression transference Onto Ted. Wow. Okay, Ted. <sighs> yes. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. My favorite quote from this whole part is as they're explaining Beethoven. Beethoven's favorite works include Mozart's Requiem, Handel's Messiah, and Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. And so they, they succeed. Yeah. Everyone applauds. It's a rousing endorsement of their historical prowess. They are truly iconic. <laughs> They've had a most excellent adventure for sure. For sure. We see them back in their garage right where we first met them. And this is where they've learned their lesson. You know, maybe we need to learn how to play our instruments. I think they've grown as characters. I know you really enjoyed watching this movie again, and I, I did enjoy it. I didn't think it held up all that well over time, with the exception of that last half, really from the mall scene on, I really had fun with it. Yeah. Unlike Back to the Future, which feels very accessible, mm-hmm. this was so genreed that I don't think that unless you kind of really did experience the 80s, and actually it built... You know, it's sort of built from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It was sort of like a caricature of a caricature, right? Yeah. <laughs> In fact, Sean Penn auditioned for the Bill character, and I he didn't yeah. he didn't get the he didn't get the role. But I think like it would have just been the same role. My other big beef with this is yes, it is so white and so gendered yeah you go to history here's your opportunity to pick up a diverse set of characters and it is not at all (laughs) the only the only diversity you have i mean you have some student diversity and of course the the president of the world in or in president of san dimas or the country or whatever he is in 2688 is a black man but in terms of the historical characters that they go and pick up it is like white European males with the exception of Genghis Khan and Joan of Arc, right? I mean, it just felt like, wow, you missed out on Martin Luther King, on, I mean, any number of really famous historical figures, much less, you know, smaller, more important, important people who played a role in history. And I just think that was a major, major, major miss. However, if I think back on what I learned in history, It was almost all white European men. Exactly. Well, sure. But that is a miss also, correct? Yes, that is a miss. I don't know in the 80s, in the 90s, even the 2021s, if history books look that much different than like white European men. Well, there was a lot. There was a lot of white European male history being taught back then. No question. However, there were plenty of women and plenty of people of color who played an enormous role in history and that we did learn about. I just think there was opportunity there. And I know it was definitely it was filmed at a certain time in history and written at a certain time. And then it was, of course, looking back on probably what we were studying at that time as well. 
for me, the lore and the like the sort of the memory of Bill and Ted for me stands strong. So maybe that does speak mm. to its legacy. There's a I, I go running past Los Gatos High School um, almost every day, and there's a big poster in the window of Bill and Ted and um, be excellent to each other. Party on, dude! Is right in the front and center of that. I like the message that it gives. I love the experiential learning. So there's a lot about this movie that I do like. Um, I also love that Brett Goldstein's podcast where he talks about movies, uh, but through the viewpoint of you've died and people in heaven want to hear about you, but they want to, but they want to hear about you through the movies that meant the most to you. It's called films to be buried with. It's extraordinary. Brett Goldstein um, writes on Ted Lasso and also plays Roy Kent. So if you know Roy oh, yes, Kent, you know Brett Goldstein. So good. And his, his podcast, he's on like episode 180 as we're recording this. Um, I've learned a lot about movies watching that. He ends his podcast by always saying, please be excellent to each oh, other. There you go. Well, Bill, my friend. Carla, my friend. This has been. This has been a most adventure. excellent podcast adventure. As always, it's always fun. It's always fun to talk about movies that talk about school with you, Bill. It really is. Always. What's next? Up next, we have... movie soundtracks we're going to jump into movies i don't know that we're going to jump exclusively into movies that are about schools maybe just soundtracks in general we'll definitely find some that have to relate to schools. some of the movies we've already covered uh but just how soundtracks are sometimes an additional character absolutely are more meaningful than the movie themselves and sometimes where the soundtrack is just random songs that have the word history or time in them like this soundtrack from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Nearly every song had the lyric time. Mm. I feel like somebody had like a database from the 80s and typed in like time and, and the first 10 songs that hit, they're like, there's our soundtrack. There's our soundtrack. But I would have loved Spotify back then. If only they had yeah. predicted it. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be a good one. Okay. I'm, I'm excited about Me that. Me too. I'm curious. You're such a musician. I am. So in some ways, you should probably just record that and I'll just listen to you talk about it for an hour. <laughs> I'll just pre-record you going, oh yeah, good point. Good point, good oh, point. So insane. No, I definitely have some albums that I are some movie soundtracks that um, are pretty memorable for me. And some of them are about movies yeah. that are about school. <laughs> well, Carla, my friend. Bill, my friend. This has been a most excellent adventure. Indeed. 